1: Welcome, everyone. This is Scaling Up Services. I'm Bruce Eckfeldt. I'm your host. And our guest today is Shane Pounder. He is Vice President of Operations and Marketing at Flip. We're going to talk to him about the work that they do and really helping hone process, hone strategy, change management, really kind of look at what is the process for improving, what is the process for continuing to get better. I always say that Better is always better than perfect. Perfect can trying to be perfect can lead us to all sorts of waiting and delays, and uh, you know, not taking action, hesitating. And so, the whole idea of just how do we get incrementally better can be a huge game changer for a lot of businesses and, and a way to really incrementally improve the way they deliver to clients, the way they improve their services. And so, it's a great kind of background and uh, topic to talk about for this podcast. With that, Shane, welcome to the podcast.
0: Thank you so much. Happy to be here, Bruce.
1: Yeah, it's a pleasure. So let's talk a little bit about your background, and then we can talk about the work that you're doing and uh, how you kind of approach the whole idea of operations and marketing, and how this idea of continuous improvement can, you know, can really fuel people's growth and fuel um, uh, the evolution of a company. But let's let's get to know you and your background. So give us a story. How? What was your professional background? How do you get involved in Flip? Give us the uh, give us the um, the journey that you've been on.
0: Sure. So. I'm an engineer by trade, so I went to school for engineering back in the day, I grew up small town Ontario here in Canada. Mm-hmm. And at the end of my engineering degree, I ended up in hospitals and working in various process type roles. So I worked in a reporting analyst in a mm-hmm. hospital and basically got to go in and look at how we did things, how much it cost, and it basically ignited a bit more of a kind of process passion in me, like trying to figure out, okay, how do you break it down? How do you understand all the little pieces? so that you can figure out how it all comes together. And and ultimately, in that role, how much does it cost? And how do you get some more money for it? So did that for a couple of years, realized that the hospital world is tougher if you're not clinical by education. So went back and did uh, business school. Mm-hmm. The expectation there was that I would get out and stick in healthcare and work in the consulting world, but managed to get in with one of the big consulting firms and uh, started down some strategy work. So did two years there. And it, it was really amazing, like the, the amount of time you spent in there, like 100-hour weeks, not necessarily fun, but I probably <laughs> got like eight years of experience in a couple of years before, yeah. uh, frankly, burning out badly. Um, yeah. After working in the hospital world uh, here in Canada, uh, I learned that I could have a really good, really enjoy my job at 50 hours a week and that, that 100 wasn't necessary, so the consulting thing was a little mm-hmm. much for me. Left that world and moved into the Six Sigma space in a manufacturing organization called Maple Leaf Foods here in Canada. Mm-hmm. And there, um, it was an interesting way of my two worlds coming together. It was an ex McKinsey guy who had started up Six Sigma at Maple Leaf initially with a manufacturing bend on it. So, you know, how do you improve processes? How do you remove variability? How do you scale the different things that you do? And he wanted to bring in some ex consultants so that they could take some of the stuff that they learned from kind of more traditional Six Sigma process work and attach it with a more of a business lens uh, in some of the office functions. So in sales and marketing. And so he brought me in and I was able to do a lot of really interesting work on growth strategy around network consolidation. So how do you take all the things you make and make them more effectively and then put them in less plants, that kind of thing. Skew rationalization. But basically, how do you do things better and more effectively, but in a business function, not just in a, in a factory function? Yeah. And so it was a really neat way to bring kind of the strategy background together with and the business background together with kind of a true process thing. And, and the, the Six Sigma training alone was fantastic in terms of how do you look at the ways you do things and find ways of doing it better And that kind of continued the love affair with continuous improvement as a discipline.
1: Uh, I love it. I love it. We can geek out on here on on continuous improvement and and lean and stuff like that. I, I guess a couple of questions. One is, what did you see as the transition you needed to make as you went from kind of manufacturing kind of process design and engineering and re-engineering to more kind of service and people processes design engineering. I mean, like, you know, when we're dealing with machines and equipment, we can look at oil levels and, you know, and shavings and, you know, we can figure out how to kind of make machines better and they, they're very good at being predictable and repeatable and things like that. People, not so much. <laughs> so how do you kind of apply these these principles from you know equipment manufacturing or manufacturing with machines to people and, and what were the transitions that you needed to make or things you needed to learn?
0: There were a couple of pieces. Number one is, and, and this is especially if you're working with teams that aren't used to the tools, don't be pedantic on the tools all the time. You don't need to show up and say, we are doing this very specific technique And it is, you have to do it this way, you need to build your process maps this way because they don't wanna to have to be stuck on all of the, the specificity of of yeah. all those little pieces. So it's going in and, and you're using the tools in your toolkit, but you're not necessarily telling them what you're doing. And so you're still using the discipline, you're just being a little bit more uh, subtle about it, if you will. Yeah. So so managing the people through the process that way. And then the other thing is around kind of managing your own expectations. I'm a process person, but and I'm very fact-based, but I also understand that sometimes numbers are gonna be a bit directional. And you need to come back and understand the insights you're driving and that although you're doing this fantastic analytic treatment of something, you've got to understand it's only going to get you so far because to your point, it's not just, you know, counting the, the widgets. It's not just, did you do two extra widgets last hour? It is a people process. And it's like, sometimes it's going to take them five minutes to do something. Sometimes it's going to take them 25 and you need to build that in and expect that when the analysis is done, you're going to need to take a critical eye to what the results are. It's not as simple as as saying that this is 100% science. You've got to look at it and say, sometimes you need to put a little bit of uh, judgment to it in a much different way.
1: Yeah, yeah. Your your first comment there just reminds me of like a lot of times when I'm when I'm working with teams or we're kind of you know looking at project or initiative or you know deliverable some sorts and we're kind of reflecting on it. And I'll just start asking some questions about okay, well, what what do we think caused that? What is, and I won't tell them we're doing root cause analysis, right? Because they'll get very confused <laughs> or they'll be like, well, what's that? And now now we're focusing on the process rather than trying to solve the problem. You know, so I think that idea of you know just presenting it in terms that are digestible to the team where they are is is a really good one. And and it can, I've seen a lot of folks come in, you know, process engineers come in, and it, and it takes six months just to train on everyone on the tools <laughs> before we can actually do any work. But this whole idea, let's just, let's just meet them where they are and start using the tools at a level that, that's going to start generating results or start generating insights.
0: I was just going to say, the, the thing you just said there, which is probably the most important, is meet them where they are. Yeah. Um, and especially if you're doing something service-based, and even from my consulting days, meet them where you are, understand where you need to go, get a line on the goals, and then dive in. Like you yeah. need to be really cognizant of of the person on the other side of the table, yeah,
1: or or get on the other side of the table with them. So 100%. the hundred percent between you, hundred <laughs> percent. Yeah. Um, the other one I'm curious about is strategy. I mean, I, I find a lot of times, you know, companies can embark on this very rigorous continuous improvement process, but you know, we we realize that there's no strategic context to be able to make decisions and and. You know, choices and kind of guide the path that we're going to go down. How, I guess, what's your balance or what do you see as being the relationship between kind of strategy and strategy development and strategic goals and continuous improvement and, you know, incremental, you know, making incremental change. How do you stitch these things together or what do you see as the relationship between them?
0: I think anything that you do on the the continuous improvement side has to be in support of the strategy and the overall performance of the organization. Like you start with the strategy and then then you build all of your supporting functions and, and all the work you do under that. And so for me, I look at uh, continuous improvement as depending on what you're trying to get out of it. So if you've got specific projects or whatnot that are on the cost management side, well, you need to step back and say, why am I managing the costs? Well, could it be because I'm trying to fund some other innovation? Is it because I need to make this specific process pay because it doesn't pay today? And yeah. that is all in support of the overall strategy. Like I don't believe continuous improvement is a standalone thing. You're not doing it just to do it. Mm -hmm. it's something you need to be thinking about in support of the strategy and in support of the direction of the organization. And ultimately I see CI, if you do it properly as a cultural construct versus necessarily a strategic one, it's around getting everybody bought into continuous improvement as a thing, as part of the culture, looking for ways to do things better, knowing the tools that they can use in their everyday job, and then driving improvements in the organization all up. Like to me, that's a bit more cultural, like Is it strategic? Yes. But ultimately, it's around the cultural idea of it. This is how we run a business and we do things in a disciplined, more effective way. run a business and we do things in a disciplined, more effective way.
1: And when you are first kind of working with a team, is there anything that you're looking for quickly or how well they're going to kind of take to a continuous improvement mindset process the tools what are the early signs of the telltales that you see on a team that make them more likely or less likely to embrace continuous improvement
0: for me i think it goes down to some of the questions they ask early on in the process and are they taking the time to really understand the question in front of them because in in i'll go all six sigma on on you for a second you know, half the battle is getting a proper definition of what it is you're trying to solve. (laughs) Exactly. And so if in those first two minutes, you've got six people at the table and five of them have just given their three best ideas for how you're going to fix the big problem, chances are you don't understand the problem. Mm -hmm. And, And so it's when you find that people are, number one, willing to kind of take a disciplined, thoughtful approach to it, and they're asking questions around, but do we really understand the problem? That's a great sign. It's the people who are willing to engage on making sure we've got a good understanding of, you know, that whole define mechanism within Six Sigma, which is what are we dealing with? Mm-hmm. Um, instead of everybody quick starting their way right to the three things that we need to do tomorrow. Six Sigma and, and continuous improvement often get a, a rap for slowing things down, but there's value in discipline. There's value in thoughtfulness. There's value in in taking a second to understand what you're dealing with. And so there is a happy medium there. And if people just start running for the end, you know you've got a problem.
1: Yeah, I mean, I, I'm gonna I'm gonna butcher the quote. I think it was Einstein said something earlier. If an hour to solve the problem, I, I'd spend 59 minutes defining what the problem is, and then the last minute solving it. You know, it's interesting It comes up on strategy for me a lot too. Which is, you know, we do all this kind of goal setting. We we kind of do all this envisioning the future, and then I always ask, you know, what's the definition of done and invariably, you know, I'll work with a team of eight people and you'll get nine different answers. <laughs> it's like, well, if we can't define what success looks like here, we're probably gonna have a problem getting there. Like that step, can be crucial whether you're dealing with continuous improvement or dealing with strategy is just making sure that there is some definition and that that definition is common among teams how, how do you how do you get there like what's the process that you use to really clarify that you know clarify the problem or to clarify what done looks like or what success looks like
0: yeah thinking back to my maple leaf days i was a big fan at the time of the whole charter concept which is you know, going back and documenting the heck out of it. And it's it's workshopping it. It's stepping back and, and getting confirmation from people around what does good look like. And, and it's it's asking those questions that you just said, you know, what is done? And then starting to kind of do some sort of affinity work around that and saying, okay, well, let's concentrate on the things that we all define in a similar way here. So if we've got five people that done looks vaguely similar, well, let's pull out those common themes and then let's document it. Let's get it down. And whether it's a charter document or something else, but some sort of mechanism to give everybody a chance to take it away, to internalize it a little better, to come back with feedback, and then you come and do it again. Like, I don't believe in the one and done approach on on kind of definition around what good looks like, because it is something that is going to morph over time. And to your point, everybody is coming at it from a different lens and you've got to manage that process you've got to give everybody a chance to see it in other people's words you've got to give people a chance to to kind of put on their empathetic hat and and try and understand well from the sales side why is the um, why is the marketer thinking this and why is the manufacturer thinking this and bringing it all together but as the lead on a project like that or work like that you're constantly looking for the themes and figure out where that common ground is and then start building out the specificity from there. But document the heck out of it.
1: Yeah. Writing it down can create a lot of clarity, both for an individual and for a team. (laughs) Absolutely. Yeah. You know, I'm curious. I always find that, you know, these kind of initiatives require, I guess, a certain context or a certain culture and sort of ground rules to work within to be able to really have these discussions and really really get the issues to the surface that really need to be discussed and get the information out there that really needs to be out there to be able to properly diagnose and and really solve some of these things. What are some of the things that you see as being key to kind of the cultural context or kind of the the environment that people are doing this work in to really make it happen effectively?
0: Mm -hmm. I think there's there's a couple things, one around culture and one around uh, getting to a common understanding early. So on the culture side, One of the things that I was blessed with in my Six Sigma world was... Maple Leaf explicitly called out as Six Sigma as a core part of the organization and worked and did a great job of embedding that culture within the organization, including having those of us who were doing that work, coaching people on their own projects and their own side work in order to help them learn the tools and run it on their own. And so it was very much from the top of the organization that this was something that was important to us and that continuous improvement and how we go about our work was core to who we were as an organization. So that top down piece really helped. And then further, I think one of the things that the team did well broadly was they built credibility within the culture by doing good work. And that was super helpful so that when those of us who came like weren't necessarily in the first wave of people came in, there was already really good uptake of what it was that we did and how we added value. And then, I think the second thing, and this one's a little bit more project specific, though, like with that cultural element out there, of course, but you also need to very early on establish a common understanding about where are you starting from? And and I think this is where some of the upfront work happens on any of this work, which is a, you know, you do your diligence, you, you get your numbers together, you get the information together, and you understand everybody's point of view. And you start with a common understanding by you build it, you come in, here's my fact base, you know, we're going to have this big discussion around, you know, how we improve our portfolio formulations and what we're making right now. Okay, well, how many formulations do we have? And why is it complicated? And what are the different pieces around it? You come in and you start there and you get everybody to that same starting point so that we're all singing from the same songbook at the beginning and then you can build from there. Because if you don't have that common understanding, you're gonna spend you know, the first little while of any project or any initiative Getting different people up to speed on different things that they should have understood at the start, and it's just thoroughly inefficient.
1: Yeah, yeah. And walk us through kind of, I guess, the base approach or or the phases that you go through when working with a a group, working with the team, and and helping them improve their process, improve how they're doing things. What's the? I guess, what what are the the major steps that you take?
0: I'm going to rely heavily on my my Six Sigma again. Number one, it's it's. I'm going to go down my defines phase. And I'm going to step back and I'm going to work with the team on where are we and and getting us all to that same place. And so it's stepping back and being rather pedantic in some cases around what is it we want to do here and, and making sure that the vocabulary is consistent and that the understanding is consistent around where we want to go. And to your earlier point, what does good look like? How are we going to establish that? And how do we get that common understanding? Because if you can get an entire team to the point that we're all running towards that same end goal, that's half the battle won. So that's a huge piece. So it's, it's that definition thing. Get us all kind of consistently thinking through things and then start setting up your baseline. So within any good continuous improvement process, there needs to be measurement underlying it. And you need to set up what do things look like today? Because ultimately, you need to measure your success. And so stepping back, getting those key measures in place, what are your KPIs, the things that you care about, and building that baseline. So how do you know where you're starting from? Um, And getting that in place, doing any kind of analysis in and around that, just to make sure you've got that common understanding. And at that point, you open the floor to how are we going to make it better? Um, and can start talking about different options for improving the situation. Those first two stages around kind of problem definition and kind of measurement of the problem and setting your baseline are vital. Like that's where I usually try to spend the majority of my time before you then start going into your options analysis. And where do most teams
1: get that wrong? I mean, what, what are some of the things that happen that throw a team off or that prevent a team from being able to do that phase well?
0: I think a lot of people make assumptions that they already know what they want to do. And they get caught up in, you know, this is going to take too long, there's too much process here. And instead of stepping back and, and kind of taking those sober second looks, they're just very quick to go, yeah, I already know what we need, or I've been here, I've done that. And so they want to jump quickly to the solution instead of taking the time up front. I think it's all, it all comes from the right place. It's a desire to solve a problem quickly and to make change quickly and have an impact quick. But I think they underestimate their own understanding sometimes about where they're actually starting from.
1: Yeah. I'm curious how you deal with, um, well, I guess if if you're dealing with process design on equipment, you know, equipment doesn't uh, have an ego. It doesn't have manipulable. You know, with people, I, I find one of the big challenges are, you know, sometimes when we dig into some of these problems and the situation we're having, you know, someone may take it personally or it may, someone might get defensive or, you know, it may look bad upon somebody. Like, how do you, how do you deal with kind of the emotional, sort of situation or the, or the emotional impact of doing this analysis and figuring out where, you know, something's not working right and, you know, maybe feel someone's feeling, you know, like they're getting blamed or they're getting pinned for for a problem. What's the dynamic there and, and how do you work around that?
0: I think I go back to to what you said about meet people where they are. And ultimately, well-managed projects involve managing people and so it's kind of facing it head on and and understanding first off like when you're going into it so if you've got a a project team that you're working on on this take some time with them individually and if you're in charge of kind of leading that all up you need to understand where each of them are coming from and how best to understand their and and we we had this tool called the hopes and fears tool it was a pretty simple one but you know what do you hope happens coming out of this or what are you afraid of and simple questions like that actually pretty quickly uncover you know i'm really hopeful that my workload's going to go down or i'm really hopeful i will be able to sell more great so those are some some good things but you get some really good stuff around the fears like I am worried that I'm going to spend more time on this project than I am actually doing my work. Or I'm worried that I will get more work out of this that I can't handle. And so you do that quickly with all of the people, and and it accomplishes a couple things. One, you've got team members who feel heard, which is great and important, but moreover, you've heard them you know, mm-hmm. it, you don't just do it for lip service. It's, it's so that you actually get an understanding and then you understand the lay of the land. And, and you've got like, you've basically built your little stakeholder analysis around, you know, who is going to help me get this done and who is, is going to be hesitant here. And, and how do I best kind of leverage everybody on here to get through it? And then where you do have kind of hostility or discomfort or anything, call it out. Cause you can tell often when you're talking to somebody, it's like, you're not, you're not giving me everything that you're thinking right now. So very sometimes leading questions, are you uncomfortable because of X? And then you give people that forum to kind of raise their concerns and then address them, but actually address them. So listen and then do what you can to address.
1: Yeah, yeah. There's something super powerful about just listening to somebody. Like, I love your tool because it just, it gives them a chance to say what they have to say. You know, even, even if you can't guarantee that some of those things might not happen. Just the fact that you're taking the time to hear them and help them be heard and help them feel like, okay, well, like I've said what I have to say, I understand, you know, the process is going to be what it is, but it can really kind of change the sort of the attitude and the mindset that people have coming into this. And then that whole idea, I I call it going meta, right? Like when you're in a process and you're like, well, there's something here that we're not addressing, or there's something above this that we need to address before we can dig at the details. It's just calling it out. It's just saying, hey, look, I'm sensing some friction here. Like, what's that about, right? Like actually kind of calling it out, bringing it to the surface and deciding look, do we need to focus on that for a little while before we can dig into kind of the, the agenda, you know, can be a hugely powerful way of, of dealing with that stuff. Because otherwise, it's just going to continue to kind of stymie the process if you don't bring it up.
0: Completely. And being very deliberate about those check-ins, even partway through. Yeah. And and very deliberate around pulling somebody aside and saying, how do you think the process is going? How are you feeling? And, you know, I, I want to revisit some of your hopes and fears. Do you Are they the same? Has something changed? Are you more worried about something? Because, you know, Continuous improvement. Like you can also be improving your your own process as you're going through. Like there's mm-hmm. the project itself, yeah. but you you also need to be adjusting your own craft and you also need to be willing to kind of change the way you're you're managing something as you go. So to, to go a little meta there too, like yeah. CI on the CI. <laughs> <laughs>
1: Wow, yeah, it's turtles all the way up and down, I guess. Yeah. (laughs) What are some of the other techniques? I mean, we we kind of mentioned this idea of root cause analysis. You brought up your um, hopes and fears. Are there other tools or things that you've used with teams that you think have been particularly effective?
0: I have an absolute favorite one, and I'll own. I probably don't do it to the letter of the intent of it, Mm -hmm. but I love it anyway, which is the failure modes effects analysis. Okay. It's a... I don't even know which discipline it originates from, but it is it is a fantastic risk framework around assessing risk from work. And so, in my current world, our operations team, they do they basically they service our merchant partners is their responsibility. And so they work with them. They provide excellent service uh, to get the the work done that's needed. But how we work with each of our merchants is different. And so we use the the FMEA tool as a way of looking at all the individual processes we have with them and assessing the risk. And I don't know if you're familiar with the tool, but it's, it's lovely. It's, it's you, you build your risk prioritization number, um, based on three things. One, um, what is the severity of a risk? So you, you build out your process, and then you step mm-hmm. through, and, and what can break? And then yeah. for each thing that can break, what is the severity of the breakage? What is the probability that the breakage gonna is going to happen? And what is the detectability that the break has happened? Oh, interesting.
1: Yeah, I've seen a lot with the severity and likelihood, but the detectability is is a little different. Why, so talk to us why that detectability is a, an important factor.
0: So I can come at it from a couple things, but look using my current world, we had uh, within our system we have uh, something called a code sheet, and so it's how we distribute our, um, our the circulars to the for the different retailers based on geography. And we had an issue about four years ago where the system was bringing in these code sheets, and they were failing, but they were failing silently. So my operators had no idea what was yeah. going on, and so all of a sudden you would have things that you were expecting to be live and looking a certain way on the app, and they weren't. And so instead of having a kind of a warning sign early in the process to say, hey, this didn't work, and being able to fix it well in advance, we ended up in a situation of finding out at the very last minute and having to do a last minute fire drill, um, because the failure was non-detectable for us. And that yeah. was a problem, because then the, the cure for the issue was a big deal. Uh, it's like, it's one of those stop the line moments, everything's broken. Mm-hmm and having to fix it that way. And so when we're looking at our different processes and trying to understand where the risks are and what can break, understanding like if this breaks, do you know that it's broken, is actually a key driver because if the answer is no, well then you need to put in some sort of detectability measure. To say, you know, you've come back and said, you know, if this breaks it's a huge deal, but you're not going to know it's you're going to break while well, you figure out a way to detect it, whether it's yeah. a live check or something. So that's why that's that was important.
1: Yeah, I, I I spent a long time in in software development, and I think one of the big game changers for me in, in programming and in developing products was something called test driven development and having test harnesses around all the software, where it was constantly exercising the software to validate that it was still doing what you expected. So, like if you put something into a shopping cart and and it was set to ship to Michigan, like it applied the right sales tax to the cart, like it would exercise the code every time you made a change or every time you, you know, you change an element or put a new object. And and the whole reason that was so game changer is because so many times uh, defects in the code wouldn't show up until it got to production and someone did something and then was like, oh, this is broken. But now we're in production, right? And so being able to have that assurance, that detectability of errors or, or, or defects in the code, When you've only made small changes, it was much easier to roll them back and much easier to diagnose rather than, you know, months of development. And now you've got, I don't know why the shopping cart's not working. I don't know why the tax rate isn't there. We've, you know, we've changed millions of lines of code since then, and now now it's a cluster. So, yeah, that whole idea of, you know, really understanding how quickly do we detect if this is a problem, and do we need to put something in place that's going to increase our detectability so that we can catch it sooner rather than later, that's a huge conceptual change.
0: Yep. Avoid the catastrophic failure. Yeah.
1: Shane, this has been a pleasure. If people want to find out more about you, about the work that you do, what's the best way to get that information?
0: I'm on LinkedIn uh, is the best place to find me, but uh, for Flip, and that's Flip with two Ps, you can come onto our website, corp.flip.com, but come take a look at what it is we're doing. We're a free shopping app and website that brings you your circulars, uh, basically finds you all the the savings and deals content you could want.
1: I love it. I love it. I'm going to show the links are in the show notes here so people can click through and get that. Shane, thank you so much for taking the time today. It's been a pleasure.
0: No worries. Appreciate it.
1: Thank you for tuning in to today's episode. Be sure to subscribe using your favorite podcast app so you don't miss our future episodes. See you next time.
0: You've been listening to Scaling Up Services with business coach Bruce Eckfeld. To find a full list of podcast episodes, download the tools and worksheets, and access other great content, visit the website at scalingupservices.com. And don't forget to sign up for the free newsletter at scalingupservices.com newsletter.